0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of Yehuda Savitsky's 90th birthday. Yehuda is a dear personal friend of mine, a longtime friend of Torch, and we all wish him many happy returns. It's great to be back on the Parsha podcast. We missed two weeks. My family and I were traveling. We went to Canada. We spent some time in Toronto. It was a pleasure to meet some of y'all, some of the faithful Parsha podcast listeners. I also went to New York City. With my son, we went to attend the Simchas Hashas that happened on January 1st in MetLife Stadium. A tremendous celebration of Torah, together with 90,000 of our co-religionists to celebrate the completion of the Dafyomi cycle. It was a tremendous experience. It was also delightful to meet several of y'all in New York City area. It was a joy. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to getting back to the Parsha podcast on this week, Parsha's Vayechi. Let's begin with an amazing midrash that I saw for the first time this year. The Parsha begins that Jacob has been living in Egypt for 17 years and he's going to pass and he's going to be dispensing blessings first to Joseph and his two sons, then to those two sons directly. And finally, chapter 49, he gathers all his 12 sons and gives them all their blessings. And some of them, of course, sound to us like rebuke. And that is a subject that we've talked about in previous Parsha podcast episodes. But I saw an amazing Midrash this year that tells us that Joseph did not spend time with Jacob for the duration of those 17 years. We think about it, you know, Jacob and Joseph, they love each other. Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. He loses him. He's terribly depressed and despondent for 22 years. He discovers that Joseph is still alive and he is given life again. And he travels down to Egypt and they reunite and that was Lasit's Parsha. And it seems like they're going to be living in close proximity for the duration of Jacob's life. But actually Midrash tells us that Joseph – did not visit his father only at the beginning when Joseph when Jacob came back down to Egypt and all the way at the very end when Joseph is summoned initially to his father's bedside to pledge that he's going to bring him back to Israel to bury him there. And then, of course, when he blesses Joseph with Joseph's sons, Joseph's sons blessed independently, and when Joseph is there together with the rest of his brothers for the final deathbed blessing of Jacob. Besides for that, Jacob and Joseph had no other direct interactions. And the reason for that is because there's a big gap in the timeline. Jacob sends his 17-year-old son, Joseph, to go check up on his brothers. And the next thing you know, the brothers come back with Joseph's shredded garment, the, the tunic, and it's dripping in blood. And they tell Jacob, well, it looks like Joseph died. And Jacob accepts that story, and that's the impression that he's under for the next 22 years until he gets the wonderful tidings that Joseph is still alive and he's a king or viceroy of Egypt. So obviously, Jacob has some unanswered questions. What indeed happened to Joseph? And we know the story, of course. We know that the brothers initially wanted to kill him. And then they compromised on selling him as a slave. And then Joseph had that meteoric rise to the monarchy. But Jacob doesn't know that. And Joseph wants to cover for his brothers. And therefore he avoids meeting his father because he knows that when his father actually meets him, his father is going to ask those probing questions. And Joseph will have to either lie or reveal what happened. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to allow the brother's crime, so to speak, to be concealed. And therefore, he does not meet with his father, which sounds like an amazing insight. And we've seen this several times so far in Genesis, how far our great heroes go to avoid shaming, to avoid embarrassing, to avoid revealing the iniquity of others. Of course, Tamar is the greatest exemplar of this, she is willing to die and to take her two children in utero with her to avoid shaming Judah. Similarly, Joseph is willing to forego spending any time with his father to be able to cover up for the sins of his brother, not just that, the sins of his brother towards him. So that's one very interesting insight that I saw this year on the Parsha. And then, when Joseph is told that his father's about to die, he brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to get a blessing from Jacob before he passes. And if you read it carefully, there's two separate blessings. One that's given to Joseph, but it's conferred to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and a second one that's given directly to Ephraim and Manasseh. But the first time, there's a very dramatic thing that happens. Joseph takes his older son in his left side and his younger son in his right side. And he presents them to Jacob with the intention that Jacob takes his right hand, the more dominant hand, puts it on Menashe, the older son. Of course, he's older and therefore he is more deserving of the more honorable hand. And Ephraim, who's the younger son, Joseph takes him from his right side so that Jacob will put his left and less dominant hand On Ephraim's head. But Jacob does this switcheroo and he crosses over his hands and he places his right hand, the dominant hand, on Ephraim's head and the weaker hand, the left hand, on Manasseh's head. And Joseph starts to object. He tells him, no, you're making a mistake. I presented them to you with the intention, they put the right hand on Manasseh, He, after all, is the b'chor. He, after all, is the firstborn, and therefore he's deserving of that honor. And Jacob says, "I know, I know. Of course, I know. Even though I'm old, and even though the Torah says that I'm blind, I can see prophetically that Ephraim is going to be the forbearer of Joshua, one of the greatest leaders of our nation's history, and therefore it's fitting, even though he's the younger brother, he." in the big picture, is more honorable and therefore he gets the right hand. My question is, and I have not seen an answer, I haven't even seen anyone ask the question, you know, Jacob and Joseph are having a disagreement. Jacob says the right hand goes on Ephraim, Joseph says the right hand maybe should go on Menashe. that was the whole discussion. But everyone seemed to agree that there's only one blessing conveyed simultaneously to Ephraim and Menashe. If you were to ask me, I would say that Joseph should present one of his sons and Jacob will take both of his hands and put it on Ephraim or Menashe. And then once that blessing has concluded, take the second son and put both hands on the second son. It seems like everyone agrees here that there's only, there's two sons, there's only one blessing. And the question is right hand on Ephraim or Menashe. That is the whole argument. That's the whole storyline. Why doesn't Jacob simply give a blessing to one and they give a blessing to the other? Why does it have to be done simultaneously? And I had this question last year. I've asked it to a few people. I haven't seen anyone else that asks it. And I haven't seen any answers to this question. So if you have an answer to this question, you can email me, rabbiolbujima.com. And of course, with any questions or comments, please always feel free to reach out. Okay. So that's one question. And I also think there's an observation. That Jacob is teaching us, suppose you have two children, one of them is more promising than the other, so in our society we're told you have to raise the weaker students instead of focusing too much on the more promising, the more capable students. Maybe we could say or we could observe from Jacob that he is taking his right hand, his greatest strength, and giving it to the one that has the greatest potential, giving it to Ephraim. Maybe there could have been an argument that would go that, hey, Ephraim has all that strength. He is stronger. He is more capable. It's more potential for him than for Manasha. So let's equalize it by taking your right hand and putting it on Manasha's head. It seems like the idea of trying to create equality, to try to raise those that are weaker at the expense of not, encouraging, not giving more strength to those that are stronger, is an attitude not shared by Jacob and not shared by the Torah. Very interesting idea. So those were some of the observations that I had on the Parsha. And if you have any comments on it, please send them to me. And I saw another interesting theme that appears twice in the Parsha. After Jacob dies, he goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh that he wants to bury his father Jacob in Israel, the land of Canaan, in that cave. And Pharaoh responds, well, you could do it because you swore to that effect. You swore to Jacob that you're going to bury him in Canaan. And therefore, because you swore, I'm going to let you go do it. And Rashi tells us, and we mentioned this in the previous Parsha podcast that we we broadcasted this year. Rashi tells us that if not for the oath, Pharaoh would not have allowed Joseph to carry the remains of his father to Canaan. But he was worried that if Joseph was forced to renege upon his oath, maybe he'll come to renege on the other oath, namely the oath that Joseph gave to Pharaoh, that Joseph knew that Pharaoh did not speak Hebrew, did not speak what's called In Talmudic lingo, Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. And there was a rule in Egypt that if you did not know every language, you're disqualified from being king. And Joseph, when he was being inspected to find out if he has the credentials to be king, he demonstrated fluency in every language, including Hebrew. And Pharaoh had fluency in all languages with the exception of Hebrew. And therefore, Joseph was actually supposed to be the number one king over Pharaoh because Pharaoh did not qualify because he couldn't speak Hebrew. And the Talmud tells us that Joseph made a promise, made an oath to Pharaoh that he won't reveal that. And therefore, when Joseph has another oath, this one that he made to Jacob, that he's going to take him and bury him in Canaan, Pharaoh is concerned that if I tell him to renege upon the oath that he gave to his father, eventually he'll come to renege on the oath that he gave to me. And we mentioned, when we spoke about this, that this is not to imply that Joseph would immediately, upon being forced to renege upon the oath that he gave to his father, would immediately call the tabloids and share the information that Pharaoh does know Hebrew. But Pharaoh's concern was that Joseph, when he was forced to renege upon his oath, the sacrosanct nature of oaths would be diminished in his eyes. And this is a principle we see elsewhere in Jewish literature. For example, famous Talmud, the book of Kiddush, page 40a, Rav Huna said, once a person transgresses a sin and repeats that transgression, it becomes as if permitted. When we begin our foray into Torah, our foray into behavior, there are certain things that we'd never consider doing. After all, the Almighty said no. The Almighty gave us a list of things that are not okay for us to do. These are the transgressions. And therefore, doing those things, well, it's anathema. It's unthinkable. It's not going to happen. But what happens if, God forbid, we dip our toe into those forbidden waters once, maybe in a moment of weakness, we transgress. And you know what? The world doesn't end. Maybe we do it a second time. We slowly acculturate ourselves to a life of sin. What was previously unthinkable can quickly become something that is acceptable. It happens after all. Mistakes happen. And it's not so bad. It's at the end of the world. It's okay. And therefore, what Pharaoh was worried about, it's not that Joseph would immediately take revenge, but rather the sanctity of oaths will become diminished in his eyes. And therefore, eventually, once he's forced to transgress it once, it's going to happen a second time. He'll become a bit calloused, a bit desensitized. And now there's a risk because if you've disobeyed an oath once, It's quite likely it's going to happen a second time and a third time and eventually become totally permitted. And this is a principle that we see elsewhere in Jewish philosophy. You know, and it actually works both ways. The Talmud, for example, tells us that there was a custom when people walked into the temple after it was refurbished by Herod. So Herod is the king of Judea and he does this massive project of refurbishing the temple and made it the most beautiful building in the world. And people were so wowed by it that it would take away their breath. And the sages instituted a custom that whenever someone walks into the temple, they walk in from one entrance and they exit from a different entrance. Because you know what? No matter how drop-dead stunning and gorgeous the temple is the first time you see it, once you see that same visual a second time, it's not as impressive. You've seen it before. You become a little bit desensitized. That wow that you had is no longer as impressive. And therefore, to keep that feeling, that experience fresh and powerful go out a different exit, don't repeat it. Because if you repeat it, well, it's not as impressive as it was the first time. That's on the positive side. I've heard of great sages, by the way, in modern times that would go to visit the Western Wall, the Kotel, only once a decade. Because the first time you go, my goodness, I am standing at the holiest or near the holiest site in Judaism. This is where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This is where the first temple was built by Solomon. Second temple was built. This is the most hallowed grounds in, in the whole world. What an amazing experience and what a sad thing it is to look at it in, in its current ruins. It's a very powerful experience the first time you do it. If you go there every day, well, it's no longer as impressive. Similarly, there's a debate amongst the various different communities of the Jewish people as to whether or not during the prayers we say the 13 attributes of mercy every day or do we Leave it only for the high holidays. So the Ashkenaz custom is to say it only during the high holidays, only fast, is only special days. Whereas the Sephardic custom is to say it every day. And the argument would be, yes, it's so powerful to say it. These are such evocative words. But on the other hand, we don't want to lose the unique nature of it. We don't want to get desensitized and callous to it. And therefore, maybe we should leave it only for special occasions. Now, we see the flip side. We see something bad, like transgressing an oath. And we know in Judaism, your word, your bond matters. And you are not allowed to desecrate your word. And that's unconscionable. And that's unthinkable. And it certainly was like that for Joseph. But you know what says Pharaoh? If he does it once, he'll be compelled to do it once by me. It's not going to be as outrageous the second time. And therefore, I know what's going to happen if I force him to transgress his oath. Eventually, the concept of oaths is going to go out the window and it's going to happen a second time. And my secret will be divulged. There's another example of this idea found towards the end of the parsha. Jacob passes away. There's 40 days of the embalming period, 70 days of mourning, and Jacob's funeral procession begins to head towards Canaan, towards the Cave of the Patriarchs. And the Talmud in the book of Sota, page 13a, gives us a very lengthy description of this funeral cavalcade. And it describes something that happens in a place called Gorin Ha'atad. And the Talmud explains that what happened is that all the kings, the chieftains, the leaders of Asav, of Ishmael, of Keturah, all of, so to speak, the first cousins of the Jewish people that descended from Abraham, they all came to join this procession. And when they came, initially, they had violent intentions. They wanted to do war against the Jewish people. But then when they saw the crown of Joseph – Placed upon the beer of Jacob, they all removed their crowns and they placed their crowns also upon his coffin, upon his beer. And the Talmud tells us that in, in total, there were 36 different crowns all placed upon Jacob's beer. And the Kabbalists tell us 36, of course, is an important number. There's Chai, which is 18. There's double Chai, which is 36, and that's to indicate that Jacob was so alive, he was so high, he was alive in this world, 18, and he's alive in the next world, 36, Jacob was exuding life. The Talmud continues that when they arrived at the cave of Machpelah, they saw Esav standing guard, and he stopped them. And he was saying, hey, there's eight burial spots here, and there's only one more available. Adam and Eve are buried there, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob already buried Leah. So seven out of the eight slots have been taken. The last spot is mine. It's not Jacob's. So they said to him, well, you sold your birthright, your firstborn right in exchange for that soup. And he responds, yeah, I sold my firstborn right. But of course, the firstborn has an additional right over the average child. But I didn't sell my average childness to Jacob that I maintained. And therefore, whatever is included in the birthright indeed is justifiably Jacob's. But what's not included is still mine. And part of that is that last burial spot. And then the brothers told him or the, the assemble told him, yes, but even that you sold. And Rashi tells us that when Jacob arrived from Laban's home, he had amassed, he had accumulated lots of gold and silver. And he gave all of that to Esav in exchange for his burial spot. So the brother said, well, you sold it in a second transaction to, to Jacob. And then he says, well, I don't remember that. Where is the documentation? Where is the contract? And the brother said, Oh no, we forgot it in Egypt. So they quickly dispatched Naphtali, who was very swift, swift like the deer, to go and find it. Meanwhile, you have Hushim. Hushim is the son, the only son of Dan. And he's around there together with all the mourners, the grandson of Jacob. And he was deaf. And he begins investigating what's happening here. Why is my grandfather not being buried? After all, we're by the cave, we're by the place where it's the final destination of this long journey, this long funeral procession. So he motioned to them, what's going on? And they responded, well, this person, this Esav, he is stopping, he's preventing the burial from happening until Naftali gets back from Egypt. And he says, Chushim, until Naftali comes back, my grandfather is going to be sitting there and going to be ashamed. and are going to be embarrassed. He took a stick and he hit Esau on his head. And the Talmud describes that Asaph's eyeballs fell out onto the coffin of, of Jacob. Jacob opened his eyes. He began to smile. What that means, I don't know. And finally, concludes the Talmud, at that time, the prophecy of Rebekah that her two sons are going to die at once, the same day, that was fulfilled, even though Jacob died several months earlier, but when he's going to be buried, that's the same day that Esav died because Chushim killed him, alternatively because Chushim began to kill him, and Judah finished the job. So that's the story that we're told in the Talmud book of Sota. One of the commentaries asked an interesting question. You know, is there a greater disgrace than to not bury the dead? It's one of the worst things in, in Jewish philosophy. And Hushim, the deaf son of Dan, is behaving totally appropriately by taking drastic measures and clubbing Esav on the head. But why is everyone else standing idle Capitulating to Asap's ridiculous demands, waiting for Naftali to go fetch it from Egypt. Why are they doing something about it? Why is Hushem the only one to take action and to stop this, this outrage? And the answer, Reb Chaim Shavu says, he says, we see from here what happens when someone gets acculturated to something bad. Chushim, after all, he's deaf. When Asaf is there and he begins this whole long dialogue, this whole long negotiation, he can't participate in this discussion. He's deaf after all. And the brothers, they see Asaf and they begin this whole dialogue and the fact that this is an outrage begins to dissipate. And after Asaf makes that red line It says, no, I'm not letting you bury him. At that point in the discussion, just like what would have happened to Joseph had he transgressed the oath, at that point in the discussion, they're already used to this idea that Asaph is going to stop the burial. Whereas Chushim, he did not participate in the initial discussion. And to him, he got it all at once and he was still flame with the fiery passion of we're not going to allow Asaph to stop Jacob from being buried. The brothers, because they had already begun this conversation and they were already acculturated, desensitized, calloused by the time Asaph makes his demands known, their fire, their vigor, their what's expected of them, well, it's already gone out the window. They're already used to it. Once you get used to an outrage, it becomes the new normal. Chushim, he's the one who's not participating in it, and therefore he's the one who has not gotten desensitized, and therefore he behaves appropriately, and it's only he and he alone who does that. I want to add another point to this. If you read this whole story, it does sound somewhat messianic. Think about it. We have Jacob. Jacob is also called Israel. And he's been in exile. He's been in Egypt. He's been away from the land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And here, his very last journey is traveling from outside of the land of Israel, returning home, returning to the land. And you have the nations, and they begin initially to saber-rattle, to threaten war. But ultimately, they concede. They, in fact, join in. They place their own crowns on his beer. But there's this last battle, this last showdown with Esav. If you remember earlier in Genesis, chapter 33, after Jacob had his initial clash with his brother and they amicably resolved it, Jacob tells him, this is chapter 33, verse 14, you go and I'll eventually get to you in Seir. And Rashi tells us that's a reference to the Messianic era. The very last battle that the Jewish people are going to have before Messiah is going to be with Esav, who resides in in Seir. And here we have again, everyone is on board, with the exception of one man, with the exception of Esav, and who comes and kills him? The deaf son, the only son of Dan, Chushim. As I say just pointed out something very fascinating. The way Chushim is spelled in the Torah, if you scramble the letters in a different way, you spell out the word Mashiach, Messiah. In fact, the Midrash tells us that in chapter 46 of Genesis, when it lists the 70 descendants of Jacob, it says the sons of Dan were Chushim. Now we know sons is multiple sons. Dan only had one son, Hushim. And the Midrash tells us that Chushim was so powerful, was so impressive, even though there was only one, we call him sons, In fact, fast forward to the Exodus story, the one son of Dan is going to spawn a tribe that is more numerous than the ten sons of Benjamin. So this one, really unimpressive, the the, the deaf-mute son that you could overlook, he really is worthy of distinction. The sons of Dan are Hushim, because he's going to spawn into a great great tribe. In addition, says the Midrash, Messiah is going to descend, of course, from the tribe of Judah, but his mother is going to be from the tribe of Dan via Chushim. And thus, Chushim, what he represents is the Messiah. I want to maybe suggest an alternative answer to this question. Why were the brothers remaining idle when they saw this horrific disgrace of their father not being buried. Only Hushim stood up to the plate and took drastic action by killing asaph Maybe we could suggest that asaph he came with a security detail. He was well protected. And they knew these brothers maybe have a hot temper. He knew that this family has some ability. They know the story of Shimon Alevi killing a whole city, and they had their eyes on all the threats. But you know who they ignored? They ignored that one pathetic son of Dan. Look at him. He's deaf. He's mute. He's not a threat. He could be ignored. The triumph of Messiah over asaph comes from the unanticipated force of Chushim. The kid that won't amount to much. The one child of Dan. What's, what happened? Dan is going to comprise one of the tribes of Israel. But he only has one son and the son is, you know, think about it. It's, it's, it's sad. Only one son and he's a deaf and he's mute. What's going to happen with this tribe? And here we see the answer. We're going to take this surreptitious route towards victory, towards Messiah, towards triumphing over Esau. And I think that's a broader lesson in the question of redemption in general. We always think that we could connect the dots to try to telegraph how exactly redemption is going to happen. And one of the things that we see again and again and again throughout Torah literature and Torah philosophy is that redemption comes from unexpected places. Next week, we're going to meet Moses. Moses is going to be the one who leads the Jewish people out of Egypt. And where did he grow up? He grew up on the lap of Pharaoh. He grew up in the house of the enemy. The last person that you would think would be a good candidate to save the Jewish people, he precisely is the one. Asaph, he's worried about all the brothers. He's worried about all the grandchildren, with the exception of Hushim, the one that is the Messiah, the one that represents the Messiah, the one that is, in fact, his undoing. Very powerful lesson from the end of the parsha, So those are some of my thoughts on the parsha. I appreciate your listenership. I appreciate you being with me throughout the book of Genesis. Hopefully, please, God will continue next week with the book of Exodus. Again, my email address is rabbiolbejima.com. Please send me an email with a question, with a comment, with any sort of feedback. If you have not yet done so, visit our website to get your own mitzvah magnets. We will ship them to you for free. Thanks for listening. Have an amazing Shabbos. Talk to you next week.